I am so thankful for the three of these people that week after week. We are, an, we are a blessed congregation to have worship, thoughtful worship week after week. So we're back to Genesis this week, okay? Because um, we, we're a couple sh- chapters short of finishing it. We're on chapter 10, and there are 52. Uh, so uh, we're a little short. Genesis is interesting because if you study Genesis, there is just so much cool Bible trivia in the book of Genesis. There really is. Some really cool things. Like, we're at this point that's kind of interesting because the first couple of chapters were about Adam and Eve and their three sons. And then we had the flood. And now we're getting to this point. We're ending talking about Noah. And now we're going to hear about the life of their three sons. And uh, every new section of the book of Genesis always starts by talking about this idea of generation. This is another generation. And in chapter 10, we're not going to read all of chapter 10, but chapter 10 is a really interesting chapter uh, because in chapter 10, as we're studying this, it starts out by saying this. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, sons who were born to them after the flood. And then you read in chapter 10, and chapter 10 is one of the most interesting historical documents in the Bible because it lays out the life of 70 men. And chapter 10 is called the Table of the Nations. And it basically explains geographically how the 70 descendants of Noah began the modern history as we understand it today. It's, it's just really fascinating. What is even more interesting is there are 70 people that form these nations, and at the end of the book of Genesis, there is 70 people listed that were the children of Jacob and his descendants that were the forming of the beginning of the nation of Israel, 70 people. Just fascinating, these, just these waves that are in here. Now, chapter 10 is interesting because chapter 10 is kind of like looking at chapter 1. Okay, You have Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and in Genesis chapters 2, it says this, this is, this is the generation of the creation of the heaven and the earth. Okay? And then in the chapter, all of a sudden you go from chapter 1 gives this overview of creation, and chapter 2 explains creation from a different perspective. Same thing's happening here. We're going to have this table of the nations, but then there's going to be inside this table of the nations, right in the middle, there's this explaining just one man. One man gets a story told about him. The rest of the men are just named. But then in chapter 11 the beginning of it, there's like this whole story that helps us understand things, kind of like Genesis 3. All of a sudden, really kind of fascinating. 
I think that these things are important for us to see because in this beginnings, we're going to be able to ask some questions about ourselves because what we're going to see is kind of the cycle of how things work through the rest of Scripture and really the rest of time until the return of Jesus Christ. Because some of the ideas that are brought up in Genesis chapter 10 and 11 are actually ideas that we kind of deal with all the time. I want to introduce the one character in chapter 10 that gets a little more information. In the middle of Genesis chapter 10, all of a sudden, we hear about the first world leader that ever existed. Okay? In verses 8 and 9, it says, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it was said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, it's interesting, in English culture today, except for our English culture, when you're speaking of people that are really good at hunting, the slang for a good hunter is a Nimrod. Uh, isn't that interesting? It goes all the way back to this. Now, we, have, we use the word Nimrod, too, in our culture. But it has different connotations, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that a little bit later. But... The name Nimrod is interesting because the name of the first world leader, his name means we shall rebel. Isn't that interesting? The, it's very interesting that the first world leader was someone that was going to rebel against somebody else's leadership. Isn't that fascinating? You know, see, God had set a direction for how things were supposed to go. I think in, in when he talked to Noah and his sons, he said, be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the whole earth. But what is Nimrod doing here? Nimrod's settling. He's taking over territory. He's not just continuing to be a pioneer. He wants to be in charge. And oftentimes, if we're really honest, leadership in our lives is us saying, I want to be in charge instead of you, God. Wouldn't you be honest and say that that's what it is? Have you ever had those moments where you're pretty sure God's telling you to do something, and you go to him and go, eh, I don't think so. I know you're supposed to be the leader in my life, but I, I, I want to be the Nimrod. <laughs> I, I want to be the leader. And it's very interesting that in this time where God is telling them to disperse, that the one person mentioned in the chapter of dispersion is the one who didn't. His name was Nimrod. And it goes on and explains where he lived. It says, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Hmm, interesting. Eric, Eka, Kelna, in the land of Shinon. For that land, he went to Assyria, and he built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kala, Risen, and between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Now, it's interesting, if you start reading the rest of the Old Testament, most of the cities that were started by Nimrod were real problems for Israel. Including one called Babel on, right? 
So it's just really interesting that in the middle of this, you are already seeing that when we do not follow God, there are huge consequences that extend forever. At the end of the chapter, it says that these are the clans and the sons of Noah according to their genealogies and their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now, it's interesting that basically, out of these 70 people, and it's interesting because Josephus, who was a Jewish historian during the time of Jesus, talked about this table of nations and how most of what was taking place in the ancient world that could still somehow connect to the table of nations. And so it's probably the oldest historical document that talks about where we're from. Now, right now, it's a really big deal to, you know, you, you get the, what is it, 23 and me? You, you get this thing and it says you're part this and you're part this. My sister did it. And um, we are, happened to be from places we didn't know we were from, you know, and be a part of people groups that we didn't know we were part of. But it's interesting that probably somehow, if there are a way to do it, and I don't think there is, you could take that whole DNA and put them back to these 70 men. So they've been given this challenge that they're supposed to do something, but let's see what happens. Because just like at the beginning, there's this expansion of parts of it, so they tell more about the creation of man. Now all of a sudden, we're going to find out some more things about this place called Babel. So in chapter 9, it said this, remember? And God blessed Noah and his sons and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So here we have chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Can you imagine that? One language. Now, that doesn't mean that there probably weren't unique ways that it was spoken and maybe particular words in different places, but there was one language, kind of like in the, in the world today, you would call English, for some reason, is the language that's the language of business across the whole earth. But there was one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east... They found a plain in the land of Sinar, and they settled there. Now, this is interesting because this is the same area that Nimrod was at. Okay? And what happened when they, when they did there? And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they, have, and they had brick for stone and bit them for mortar. Now, you have to understand that probably to this point... They had been on a really fancy camping trip, okay? And they were nomads, and they didn't live in permanent structures. They lived in caves, and they lived in tents, and all of that, because they were living out this command of the Lord, which was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth. And it's easier to do that when you're portable, okay? But all of a sudden, some of them came to this valley, and it was really nice. And they decided that instead of continuing to expand like God had called them to, that they thought maybe settling would be nice. You know? and, and if we're going to settle down, you know, it would be really nice to have better building material. 
And they weren't living in an area where there were stones, but it was an area that was filled with clay. And they made their own bricks. Now it's interesting because later on, if you remember Babylon, there were some big brick ovens. Remember them? And there were these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that Nebuchadnezzar was frustrated with. You know, it's, you, so, you, so you see the future in the present. So that's what they did. You know, I, I think that one of the things that we need to be really careful of, even today, is that we have to decide how permanent life is here and how much of our time and energy we're going to give to bricks and mortar. We did a a Bible study last year, and I loved the phrase that they would say at the beginning of every single study, welcome not home. But there is a sense that every one of us wants to have a sense of permanency. Uh, One of the hardest moments in our lives is when we lost our home and we couldn't afford our apartment anymore and we decided to live with Nancy's sister. And I can still remember the drive up, realizing that I no longer had an address. We like to have that sense of permanency. You see, they weren't any different than we are. We're no different than they are, are we? They said, let us make bricks. That's the first thing they said. And then they said this, let us build. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower which reaches with its top in the heavens. You know, we still have this thing. You know, I used to live in Chicago. The tallest building in the world used to be there. It's not that they tore down the building. It's just that somebody else had to build another one closer to the heavens. You know? And it used to be called Sears Tower. Sears isn't doing so well anymore. It has a new name. You know? There's another tower there. It was at the time the eighth tallest building in the nation. It's called the Hancock Tower. It's named after somebody else. They wanted this idea that let's build something, let's build it permanently, and let's build it to our own glory. One of the most interesting things, if you were to travel to some of the old cathedrals, these beautiful old Ephesus, inside most of them there's a place that you can look and there's going to be a stone somewhere. And the stonemakers carved out of the stone, and it usually says something like this, to the glory of God. They weren't carving that in the brick here. Because this is what they said. They wanted to build, but then it says, let's make a name. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. No, they're saying, come on. Instead of doing what God said, Let's, let's stick together, and instead of making our lives matter because of somebody else's name, let's make our lives matter because of our own name. This idea seeps into our lives nowadays all the time. Some of you will talk to me in frustration. You'll say, you know, I used to like working for this other guy because we were like a family, and he knew who we were. But now we're just a number in a corporation. We don't have a name of our own. 
There is this idea of wanting to have identity. And sometimes in the process of having identity, we stand in the way of the identity that God wants for us. Sometimes people don't want to come to Christ, and the reason they don't want to come to Christ is, I think I'm going to lose myself if I come to Christ. Some people don't want to do marriage the way the Bible speaks of marriage because they say, wait a minute, it says when two become one, that means that I've lost my identity. I don't want to do it God's way. I want to do it my way. We, we were at the store yesterday, and, this, and, and you know we're, we run our, our finances like we're one couple, and so we will jokingly say, even though everything's in the same pot, we'll go to a store and I'll say, I'll pay now, okay? And I'll pull out my debit card, and we'll pay, and then the next store, Nancy would go, I'd go, it's your turn, Nancy, you pay. You know, and, and, you know, and so you know, it's, it's kind of funny because it's really all the same money, but we're taking turns. But sometimes when you're talking to people, They'll go, you know, my husband and I do that. Sometimes I pay for bills out of my checking account, and sometimes he pays for bills out of his checking account. And you realize that they aren't one in their, their finances. They're about four, you know? There's mine and yours, so I'll do you the favor in our relationship, and we'll use my money today. But it, it's not a joke for them. It's their reality. You see, there's always all these little things where we have to challenge ourselves and we want to make a name for ourselves. It's, it's hard to be in a situation nowadays where we're not recognized for what we do. You know? The world is full of people trying to make a name for themselves. So that's scene one. Scene one is a group of people gather in this valley, learn how to make bricks, make homes. It's not enough to have a home. We can build taller. We can build bigger. We can make a name for ourselves. Scene two is enter God. And the Lord came down to see the city and the town which the children of men had built. So all of a sudden, it's interesting, because they were building up to the heavens, remember? It's interesting that it says the first thing that God had to do is he had to come down. It's not like, it, and the Lord stepped on the top of the tower and took the elevator down. He didn't do that. So they weren't all the way to the heavens then, I take it. It's interesting now to see what God sees. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they will, and nothing they will propose to do will, will do will now be impossible for them. I wonder what God sees when he comes into our lives. And he looks at us. Does he see the same kind of independence that he saw in them? Look at they they have the ability to do anything. And although it's not written here, without me. They are so powerful that that's, they can almost do the impossible without me. That's what God began to see. 
I think that when we hit those areas of our lives where we realize that we are not in control and that everything isn't working out the way we want and we want and we see things as impossible, I think God likes those moments. Because those are usually the moments that we, we realize that we need a power greater than us. There are a lot of people in our nation right now that they think the power that is greater than them is the government, and somehow the government can fix all their problems. That's what they think. That's how they view things. They just say, you know, and, and you'll see, hear the politicians get up. Something will happen, and they'll go, this will never happen in our country again, and we're going to spend billions of dollars to make sure that it never happens again. Okay? This can never happen again, so we're, we're going to diminish your freedom... Your inalienable rights that our forefathers saw that you should have because this can never happen again and the way to happen it can if we're going to limit everybody's freedom. But at the beginning, God saw this and, and I think he was concerned. When God was talking to Jesus about these things because it says that God came down and he was talking, I think that he realized he saw the consequences of people doing what they were doing. So what did God do? God says this in verse 7, Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. Okay? How many of you experienced this before in life? Even with other people speaking English. That instead of being able to plainly understand each other, we spend hours and hours explaining ourselves, don't we? And then we go to another country, and they don't speak English, and we're pretty sure they're all deaf, so we talk louder. <laughs> and there is great confusion. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. Because of what God saw, God saw the only way that we would still need Him is that He had to make us needy again. And one of the ways that He had to make us needy is in the whole area of speech and communication. That's why occasionally as a husband, you're trying to communicate with your wife and you finally look up to your Lord and say, God, what are we going to say to her? I don't think she's understanding, you know? Or as a parent, we're trying so hard. We've used six illustrations to explain to our children what we're trying to say, and they just don't seem to be getting it. And we cry out to our Lord, we go, God, you're going to have to help me. I need a different story. Can I have a story like you gave David for Nathan? I need a Nathan story. God, I need help right here. Because communicating is hard work, isn't it? It's exhausting. How many times are you misunderstood every day? Oh, quite a bit. You know? And later on, you'll come back and the person will go, well, you said this and this is what you meant. And you're like, oh, that was not in my mind at all. I, I, I didn't think that way at all. In fact, I'm male. I'm not even capable of thinking that. <laughs> you know? You know, 
you know, thank you for assuming things, but your assumption and what goes on in my head are two very different things. In fact, I don't think that's ever been inside my head, ever. And that's what you thought. And isn't there all kinds of, there's all kinds of different seminars you can go to on this, right? I'll try parroting. What I heard you say is this, and they'll go, no. Right? You see, God saw the potential of what was going on, and he knew that the only way to solve it was to bring confusion into the room. In fact, it says that he did more than that. So God dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. You know, sometimes God has to confuse situations, and other times he just has to change our circumstances and move us somewhere else. These are very hard things for both of us. You know, if you've ever seen that thing on stress, what are the different things that cause stress? This is something that causes stress. I think that God knows that sometimes the only way we're going to turn to him is if there's some stress and some chaos. That's what God does. And he says, therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them out of the face of all the earth. It's not called Babel because Nimrod decided that was his name. It was called Babel, and that wasn't probably what they were going to call the city. You remember they were going to build a city and a tower, and they were going to name it so that people would know who they were. It's called Babel because that's where God decided to intersect with them. And if I think about you and I think about me, you see the word Babel means confusion. Okay? It's interesting all the different places that Babel is coming up in. Right now there's a company and they call themselves Babel and their whole goal is to teach you other languages. You know, I don't think they would go with the original name. Hi, the name of our company is Confusion. And we want to teach you how to communicate with people. But that's what the word Babel meant. God named it. If you think about Babel that became Babylon, Babylon was a place of confusion, wasn't it? In fact, if you go all the way to the book of Revelation, it says there is a day coming when God will throw the harlot Babylon, the rebellious people against him, into the lake of fire. And Babylon will be no more. How many of you are looking forward to the day when confusion will be no more? Yeah? The Word of God says, now we know in part, but then we shall know in whole, right? Now we see dimly, then we shall see clearly. You see, God is about this. But here's, here's our challenge. The bottom line is that every one of us is a Nimrod. Okay? I have been called a Nimrod before. Why are we Nimrods? Because we all want to rebel. We, we really don't understand obedience to God really well at all. And so we're constantly negotiating with God. 
God's saying, this is what I'd really like you to do. Well, can I build bricks too? God, can we, can we find a, a middle ground where we can meet here, God? And so I think that sometimes we need to realize that the confusion and displacement that we are feeling are gifts that God is trying to give us so that we will turn back to him. Are you facing some confusion in your life? Some things that you don't understand, some things that are hard to understand. Are you asking God? I think we do the first part. We ask God to come. And so God's looking around, and he sees what he sees. And he looks at his son, Jesus, and he says, I think the way we can help them here is by bringing a little confusion. And Jesus says, well, that doesn't make any sense. And he goes, oh, yeah, it makes great sense. Do you know why it makes great sense? Because if I can bring confusion into the situation, they'll turn to me. And I have promised them that in the middle of confusion that I will what? James chapter 1. If anyone lacks wisdom, he's supposed to ask of God and he'll give him wisdom. Okay. God, God, I'm feeling a little displaced. I, I'm, I'm, I don't really have an address right now. I, I don't have my place. I, I, I'm struggling with that. And, it's, and he's going, it's okay. This isn't your home anyway. I, I never asked you to settle and sit still. I asked you to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. I didn't ask you to sit around and wait. I asked you to go. But we look at God and we look at our situations and we hear that he's the Prince of Peace and so we say, God, just get rid of all the confusion because I don't want to live in confusion. He says, but confusion is what turns you to me. For your sake and the love that I have for you, I've got to introduce a little babble so you don't become a Nimrod. That's what the cross is all about. The cross is all about the fact that God knew our lives were filled with our rebellion against what he knew was best. And instead of just not acting in that moment, he says, I want to forgive them for their rebellion, and I want to connect them to me so I can take care of the confusion in their lives. And that's why Jesus Christ died on the cross. We needed that kind of forgiveness because the confusion always leads to having things in life that cause us to be in situations where we need forgiveness. <laughs> he knew that. So the cross is God's place to take care of all the babble in our lives and to take care of all the rebellion of Nimrod in our lives. Because we are trying to make it our own. 
we want to be independent, but He calls us to be dependent on Him. He calls us to call on Him. So there are some of you in this room that have never asked Jesus Christ to be your personal Savior. And this journey for you starts there. It starts by asking Jesus Christ to be your personal Savior. You can look at your lives the way God is at this moment, and you're just saying, there's a lot of confusion here. There's a lot of selfishness here. I have hurt people, and I've been hurt by a lot of people. It's all because of what took place in the plane of your life. But the only way to solve it is to have a Savior. And you've been trying really hard for a very long time, and you cannot save yourself. You can't save yourself, and you can't save anyone else because you're not the Savior. So you need to ask God to be your Savior. It's as simple as praying a prayer like this. Dear God, please forgive me for the wrong things I've done in my life. I am sorry for wanting to lead my life instead of you, the God of all creation, being my leader. Thank you that Jesus Christ died on the cross so that I can be forgiven. I accept him now as my Savior. And I accept the cross that he died for me. And that's where some of you need to begin today. But there's others of you in your life that right now you're experiencing a lot of babble. And I want you to hear the whisper of God in your babble. I want you to hear the God of heaven who's sovereign over all things and who loved you enough in the same way he loved those people back then that he will create confusion in his life so that you will turn to him instead of trying to live independently without him. Until you figure out that you are not in charge and that you, if you were, you wouldn't be very good at it and he needs to be in charge, the babble will continue and the confusion will continue and the sense of displacement will become greater. The unsettledness you feel will increase because God uses those things to draw us to Himself. You don't just need the cross to save you. You need it to continually save you from yourself. Because the bottom line is, we're all a bunch of nimrods. We are. And we all need a Savior. And so instead of trying to figure out how to control and fight the chaos and confusion that is your life, you need to surrender to the God who's in charge of all the chaos. And His name is Jesus Christ. Let's pray.